right, good evening. Yeah, as Dave said, you guys are the few who made it through the storm, and praise God, that's awesome. So uh, Scott is still on vacation, and he should be back, I think, on Friday, so be expecting to have him teach on Sunday. Really, really cool, but I get the opportunity to share with you guys tonight, which I always love. Uh, it's always a lot of fun, uh, and, and the college students are also over here, which is also very cool. But um, tonight, what we're going to be talking about is a little different than usual. We're going to be focusing on this idea, this concept of loving the truth. And so this, this concept comes to us from the book of 2 Thessalonians. You guys can flip there if you want. Um, if not, just, just listen and really absorb what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. And Paul is talking specifically about the last days. Right? And uh, those of you guys who don't know, in Christianity, what we mean by the last days is we mean any time after the ascension of Christ in the book of Acts to his return at the end of time. That's the last days. So we are living in the last days. But when the Bible talks about the last days, it's specifically talking about the time period that's leading up to. So as we get closer and closer to the return of Christ, we are more and more in the last days. And uh, when we look at what Paul's getting at in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, what he's saying is that there is going to be some sort of a characteristic quality of the last days, of the people living in the last days. And so we pick things up in verse 10, and it says, And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they may be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but instead had pleasure in unrighteousness. All right, let's pray. Father, I thank you that we get the opportunity to be here tonight. I thank you for your word and how it instructs us and guides us. I pray that you would help us to understand these things in greater clarity tonight, that we would grow closer to you as a result, and we would learn how to praise you in spirit and in truth, and in your name, amen. So the first thing I need to go over, and I'm, I'm only going to spend a couple minutes on this because it, I don't think it bears much argument, but unfortunately we live in a culture, and it is a unique culture, in which there is kind of a war on absolute truth, meaning that a lot of people in our culture don't believe that absolute truth exists. They believe in purely subjective truth. And all that means is that when you talk about something that's subjective, you're talking about something that is only true for the subject, for the individual. So if I were to say, ice cream is the best dessert ever, that's subjectively true, right? That's only true for some of us, depending on who you are. But if I were to say something like, the earth is 93 million miles away from the earth, that's objectively true, right? It's true no matter what. It doesn't matter if you disagree with me. If you disagree with me, that just makes you wrong, right? That's what objective truth is. Now, our culture basically says there really isn't any such thing as objective truth when it comes to philosophy or immaterialism, meaning that they would agree in scientific absolute truth. They just don't agree with philosophical or religious absolute truth, right? Or even moral or ethical absolute truth. Now, this is, it's very weird. It's very strange. It's a difficult concept to address. Um, C.S. Lewis, years back, wrote a little book called The Abolition of Man, in which he talks about this, this uh, what was happening in his culture and society, which has led us to where we are right now. And he predicted our entire era, our entire culture, based on a textbook that he got when he was a kid. And when he was a kid, he got this textbook that was supposedly an English textbook, but it said that it, it had two individuals walk up in front of a waterfall, and the textbook said when people go in front of something like a waterfall or a sunset, they might say something like, this waterfall is beautiful. But the writers of that textbook said, this is false, this is wrong. What you should instead say is, this waterfall incites feelings of beauty within me. Or it excites feelings of wonder within me. You shouldn't say that it's beautiful because beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Therefore, it's subjective. Therefore, you can't make statements like that. You guys following? Now, what he said is, by taking away the nature of objective truth, objective beauty, he said it's stripping us of our understanding of truth as a whole, right? And he was right. And this is what he said. 
For the wise men of old, meaning the people who lived back in the day, he said the cardinal problem with mankind has been how to conform the soul to reality. And the solution had always been knowledge, discipline, and virtue. For magic and applied science alike, the problem is instead, how do you subdue reality to our wishes? And the solution has always been a technique. Okay, so this is essentially what he's saying, because that's it's kind of a mouthful. But essentially what he's saying is, if you go through cultures throughout time, what all cultures have realized is that there's reality and there's us. And there's going to be a disconnect between what we expect, meaning what we want to come out of the universe, and what actually is. And most cultures throughout time realize that the problem with that disconnect was not reality, it was us. We need to change. So because of that, we need to become disciplined, we need to grow in wisdom, and we need to grow in moral virtue. He says, today we live in the first era in, man in mankind's history in which we believe that the problem is not us anymore, we believe the problem is reality. And so if we can trick ourselves into believing the reality that we want, it becomes real and authentic. Now I don't have time to, to break down this argument too much because if you stop and think about it for any length of time, you'll realize just how ridiculous it is. But I do want to give the utmost amount of caution and respect to people who might hold that view, that there is no such thing as absolute truth. The first reason why a lot of people believe that today is they believe it's an enlightened position. Meaning they look at the world and they look at how many wars and oppression and uh, horrible things like racism and bigotry and slavery and all these other things. And they say all these descend from people believing that they had absolute truth. So if we want to get rid of all that stuff, we just need to believe that truth is subjective, right? And that'll get rid of oppression. It'll get rid of bigotry. It'll get rid of arrogance if we just believe that truth is relative to the person, okay? The issue with that is that it's a self-defeating principle. And this is what I mean. If it's true, it's false. And if it's false, it's false. That's a self-defeating principle. So let me put it this way. If I say there's no such thing as absolute truth, the question that you can ask is, well, was that true? Is that a true statement? Do you expect me to get meaning from that? Do you expect me to believe that as well? Right? So if you are right and there is no such thing as absolute truth, then the statement that you said is false. But if you're wrong, then it's still false. Right? It's a self-defeating statement. Do you guys get that? Okay, the next problem with it, and it's probably the bigger one, is that nobody lives that way, right? Nobody lives this way. To undermine absolute truths is to undermine everything that we intrinsically believe about love, welfare, relationships, and justice. Meaning, if I don't believe there's a such thing as absolute truth, that means I cannot get upset with you if you wrong me in a relationship, right? No one would ever say that, though. No one comes home finds their spouse cheating on them, and the spouse says, hey, don't you know that this is how I love? And truth is relative. And this is just how I express my love and my care for you, is by cheating on you, right? No one would be like, oh, yeah, you're right. There's no such thing as absolute truth. So that's true for you, and it's just true for me that, you know, that's wrong, but who am I to put my, my trip on you, you know? That's totally cool. No one lives like that. Or the next time you get pulled over by a cop, try this one. Just say, hey, you just think that going 85 and a 75 is wrong. I don't think that way, you know? And don't try to put your trip on me because that's how wars start, you know? You, no way. <laughs> no one lives that way. No one should live that way. No one can live that way. Unfortunately, it, again, it only works if you don't think about it for too long, right? So as long as you just embrace the principle that this makes me more enlightened, and you don't spend any amount of time actually thinking through the repercussions of this type of belief, you can go on functioning. But if you think about it for any length of time, it defeats itself, right? It doesn't work in reality. Now, moving on to the main point, though, so I just want to spend a couple minutes on that because I think it's an interesting way that our culture is going. But moving on to the main point, Paul here seems to believe that there's going to be an attack not merely on truth, but on the love of the truth, right? Now, let me define that. Let me explain what that means. Paul doesn't say in this passage that people are perishing because they don't know the truth. 
He's saying that they're perishing because they didn't receive the love of the truth. Meaning, he seems to think that simply knowing what is true isn't enough to combat the lies that we believe and cause you to live a truly virtuous life that honors God. Meaning this, things that are merely concretely true usually don't have the power to change someone's life. I believe a lot of things about science and history, and they have in no way changed the way that I live in my day-to-day. The things that change your life are not merely the things that are true, but that the things that you're attracted to, meaning they're the things that you find to be attractively true. And I'll explain that in a second. Now, C.S. Lewis, again, in The Abolition of Man, he comments on this. So he says, by taking away objective values, he says, we've stripped mankind of having something that he calls the chest, which if you want to understand what the chest is, you've got to read the whole book. But essentially what the chest is for our purposes today is the chest is your heart. It's your desire. It's your attractiveness. It's, your, it's the center of your being that goes beyond your mere intellect. Now, this is what he says. It still remains true that no justification of virtue will enable a man to be virtuous. Okay? Meaning that simply knowing that something's wrong doesn't mean you're going to act on that. Let me give you an example. If I were to go down to, you know, 6th Avenue or something like that and talk to someone who is hopelessly addicted to heroin or crack or something like that, merely explaining to that person that this drug is damaging them is not enough to change them. You want proof? They know it's damaging better than you and I ever will. Does that make sense? They don't just know it ethereally, they know it practically. They see what it's doing to them. Yet that knowledge isn't enough to change them. In Romans 7, Paul talks about this, and he says, the things that I don't want to do, these are the things that I do. The things I want to do because they're virtuous, I find in myself the inability to practice them. Right? So he recognizes that there's this disconnect, that simply knowing what's right doesn't lead to doing what's right. Right? So even if I proved to somebody that something is true, that the gospel is true, that God is real, things like that. Even if I proved to someone emphatically that these things are right, it wouldn't mean that they would actually accept the truth. We as humanity are, are led far more by our chests than our heads. Now listen, listen to this. Without the aid of trained emotions, the intellect is powerless against the animal organism. Isn't that interesting? In battle, now he's talking about actual warfare, he says it's not logical arguments that'll keep the reluctant nerves and muscles to their post in the third hour of the bombardment. The crudest sentimentalism about our flag, a country, or a regiment will be of far more use. We were told that all long ago by Plato, as the king governs by the executive, so reason and man must rule the mere appetites by means of the spirited element, or to put it another way, the head rules the belly through the chest. Okay, let me, let me break that down again. So as someone who's been to Afghanistan, been to war, I'll tell you that merely knowing that what you're doing is quote-unquote right is not enough to keep you there. Does that make sense? So once this fire starts, you're not like, oh, I need to fight these people because terrorism is bad and dot, 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 and I'm making logical arguments with my buddies and we're saying, yes, logically it makes sense to be here. You know, Th- That's not how it works. It's what keeps you there in the moment is not a logical argument. It is your heart. It's a belief. It's a love. It's a love for your family. It's a love for your country. It's a love for your fellow man. That's what keeps you there. And what Lewis is saying is he's saying the second reason why truth is becoming more and more abhorrent to people is because we have completely taken away the chest in our culture. We've completely taken away the chest. How have we done that? Well, he makes a a really cool analogy, and I'm I'm just going to read this to you guys. He says, the task of modern educators is not to cut down jungles, but to irrigate deserts. Now, this is what he means. What he's saying is we've become a culture that is so argumentative, 
We've become a culture that's so argumentative that what we have essentially done when you guys send your kids off to be educated, what teachers are doing is they're spending far more time convincing your child of what's wrong and not enough time of convincing them what's right and why it's right. Okay, let me just take one program out of the air to show you this truth. Take the sex education program that people have been going through. Okay? In the sex education program, what that program is designed to do is it's designed to just simply tell you what not to do. Right? Don't do this, don't do that, wear this if you're going to do that, don't do this when you're doing that. You know? And that's, that's essentially what the entire program is. And if you do this, then you're going to get this. Right? That's how it works. Now, what he's saying, what Lewis would be saying to them, is he's saying you're not actually giving that person any virtue or love of the truth. You're simply telling them what's wrong. And simply knowing what's wrong is not enough to stop them from doing what they feel is right. Okay? And church, unfortunately, does the same thing. We spend so much of our time trying to prove other people wrong other worldviews, other perspectives, that we don't take enough time to help people understand why we believe what we believe, first off, and secondly, not merely the truth of God's word, but the practicality and, dare I say, the beauty of God's word. Because that's what's going to actually change someone. right? Me knowing the sexual commandments of the Bible were not enough to conform me to the purity that God requires. It was only in seeing the beauty of God that I became someone who delighted to love the truth. Does that make sense? I garnered a desire for truth that was powerful and impactful, but it wasn't due to simply knowing the truth. It was due to loving the truth. Now, the next thing I want to point out about this passage, which is equally as important, the Bible says something about human nature that is almost, I want to say it's almost unique to the Bible, meaning that most philosophies, most religions don't say this, okay? Most philosophies and most religions essentially say that you're pretty good, but you're off on a couple areas, right? So you're like a bee, and then through the right processes and religion and truths and morality, you could be bumped up to an A, right? That's what most religions believe. The Bible's unique in believing that you are completely a mess from the inside out. You are totally a mess. You are so much a mess, in fact, that you can't even trust the functioning of your own mind. That's a scary thing to believe. This is a truth, by the way, that God laid on me a couple years ago, and it was absolutely terrifying for me to hear that. Right? And I'll just give you guys a couple passages that, that dictate this. The first one is this one that we just read. It seems to believe, Paul seems to be saying, that people will be given up to delusion. I mean, if they're going to be lying to themselves because they don't like the truth, they're going to actually trick themselves into believing what's false. Okay? Another one is Jeremiah 17, 17, in which Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things who can know it. And then there's a myriad of proverbs that I can't give you the quotations off the top of my head, but I can tell you what they say. One is, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, therein lies destruction. And then others that say, a man's steps are of the Lord, so how can he know his own path? And passages like that. And what essentially they're saying is they're saying, you are such a mess that you lie to yourself, which is a hard thing to swallow. So all my life, what I, what I really fed on was, you know, Descartes, I think therefore I am. You know, those of you guys who don't know the reference, that's fine. Don't worry about it. But essentially what I thought was, I can doubt everything around me, but at least I could trust that I think, therefore, I am. Does that make sense? At least I'm trustworthy. I'm not going to lie to myself. The world will lie to you. Politicians will lie to you. People will lie to you. But I don't lie to me. And then when I read this, I was like, oh, my gosh, I do lie to me. I can't even trust myself. It was freaky. It was scary. The analogy that I use with people is it's like being lost out in the ocean and then suddenly starting to doubt your own compass, right? The compass is the only thing you got to go off of. All you see in every direction is blue. But here's the thing. If your compass really is faulty, believing in it simply because it makes you feel safer will only lead you to ruin. 
The only if you stopped believing in your compass would you have the wherewithal to look up and begin to navigate via the immovable heavens, stars and the sun, right? So we as Christians, we need to hear this. We need to be like, wow, you know, my mind and my heart are not to be trusted. There needs to be a training and a disciplining of my chest, of my heart, that enables me to understand truth. And where does that begin? By having a love of the truth. By having a love of it. By, by being so infatuated with the truth that even when something is superficially offensive and horrendous to me, I would still pursue it because the truth is better than the lie. Okay? Uh, let, me, let me go through some specific examples and I'll explain this. But first, let me start with a quotation from Christ. Right? This is another place where he, again, it seems to insinuate that we lie to ourselves. John 8, verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him. So these are not people that think he's wrong. These are not people who don't believe he's the Messiah. These are people who had believed him. He says this, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. By the way, if the truth sets you free, what does that insinuate? That lies are holding you in bondage. Right? Now he keeps going. He says, they answered him, we are offspring of Abraham. We have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say that you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to it. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So Jesus, again, says that there is some sort of a lie, and he even calls money. He even seems to insinuate to them that you are lying to yourselves. There's something you've tricked yourselves into believing you're free when in reality you are a slave. Now, why did they reject it? I'll give you a couple reasons of why we lie to ourselves. A couple reasons of why we lie to ourselves. The big one is pride. It's pride. Obadiah 1 verse 3 says, The pride of your heart has deceived you. All right? Now, going back to that story, that, that section of scripture that I just told you from John 8. Understand this. Jesus offered these men true, real, and lasting freedom, but their pride stopped them from being able to admit that they were slaves in need of freedom. You even see in this story that they become angry at Jesus for even suggesting that they were in bondage of any kind. This type of denial that we see here happens to us when we realize at some level we are broken and not the people that we desire to be, but instead of admitting our own helplessness, we lie to ourselves and convince ourselves that we are whole when we are in actuality broken. But Jesus tells these men and us that it is the truth that sets us free. The lies that we tell ourselves might bring us comfort in believing that we are strong, but lies can't set you free, only the truth can. In the end, is our pride, self-reliance, and our desire to save ourselves and be good enough in our own efforts that can keep us from healing. Okay? Now, the reason why I was looking down is I'm quoting myself. I'm quoting a book I wrote. But anyway, um, you know, when, when, uh, when what I'm trying to get at there in that quotation, what I'm trying to say right now is that you lie to yourself and I lie to myself when I realize that, remember the first quote I had from C.S. Lewis, when reality... And my expectations don't meet. I make up the difference by lying. Okay? And isn't that why we lie to other people, by the way? Right? Why do we lie to other people? It's because we realize that reality and what we think they want to hear are not the same thing. And so we tell them what they want to hear in order to meet the expectation. Does that make sense? So the lie makes up the difference. You do the same thing to yourself. So let me give you a couple examples. Let's say, well, let's just use this example and then I'll move on to a couple more. Jesus telling these men that they're slaves is offensive. You guys understand that? That's an offensive thing to say to somebody. Okay, if you don't believe that, try to say it to somebody. Right? Just go to someone and be like, hey, you're a slave, man. You're in self-denial. You are abusing yourself. You don't understand what the truth is. See how they react to that. Right? They're not going to take kindly to that kind of talk. Right? So when Jesus says you're a slave, that's a deeply offensive thing to admit. 
right? Because at that moment, they had two choices. They could either bow their knee to Jesus and say, you are truth. And even though this offends my sensibility to understand that I'm a slave to sin and I'm a horrid, wretched person, I believe you. Or they could reject him. And that's what they did. That's what they did. They rejected Jesus. They rejected what he was saying because it was more comforting to their sensibilities to believe the lie than to submit to the truth. Right? We do this all the time. So let's say we as Christians, we take moral things like this. So we know as Christians, for instance, that it's wrong to be bitter or resentful towards someone. We know that. Right? We also know it's wrong to lose our temper. So if someone was talking to you and they were setting you off or maybe they were mentioning someone that you are still bitter at and you start losing your cool, you start losing your temper and they say, hey, what's going on? Instead of being like, you know what's going on? I'm a sinner. You know, and I'm really bitter at that person and I have not forgiven them and to be honest, I don't want to forgive them. I hate them. Instead of saying that, you know what you'll say? You'll be like, well, you provoked me or why are you bringing that up? Or you'll change the subject or you'll blame shift. Or you say, well, you don't understand what that person did to me. Or you don't understand what I've been through. That's why I'm acting this way. Right? You come up with some other reason, some other excuse for why you're acting that way. And by the way, when you're saying stuff like that, you are trying to convince yourself more than the other person. Right? You want that to be true. You desperately want that to be true. Why? Because what's the alternative? That you're a sinner. That you haven't done what's right. And saying that truth is too offensive to your sensibilities, so you choose the lie over the truth, okay? Or maybe you're led by your biases, meaning that you believe something and you don't want to be wrong, and so you'll defend to the death something that has been disproven simply because you don't want to admit, I was wrong, right? Now, this could happen in even political arenas, religious arenas, or it could even happen in relationships. I'll give you the political one. I think this is funny. They did a study where they went out basically slandering politicians in front of people, seeing if they would believe it. So they would go to someone who identifies as a liberal, and they would say, can you believe that Donald Trump owns slaves? They would say, like, some outlandish lie. And what they found is if someone was already a liberal and they already thought that Donald Trump wasn't that great, they would believe it simply because they didn't like him. But then they did the same thing to conservatives. They took aside conservatives. They'd be like, can you believe that Obama, you know, like, dropped a bomb on Saudi Arabia or something like that without approval from Senate, they'd be like, oh my gosh, I didn't, yeah, I, I heard about that. You know, they would say, instead of being like, no, I never heard about that, that sounds crazy. They'd be like, yeah, I heard it somewhere, someone told me, you know, I, that's crazy. You know, they, they would actually believe it. Why? Because they already had a prejudice. Does that make sense? They already had a bias to believe something. And so when someone, any amount of evidence filtered into their already biased opinion, they accepted it. Does that make sense? They embraced it. It, relationally, this can happen all the time, okay? So let's say you're in a fight with someone, your spouse, your kid, something like that, and you know you did something wrong, right? You know you blew it. You knew you, you said something wrong, you did something wrong, something to that effect, and they're coming at you, and you know that you're an idiot. You know that you should just say, hey, you know what, that was wrong, I shouldn't have said that, I shouldn't have done that, blah, 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 blah. But instead of just admitting that, you blame shift, right? You just, you blame them for something. You'd be like, well, that's not important. That's not here or there. You did this, right? You, you completely change the subject. Or you try to, again, double down on your self-deception and try to convince yourself that what you did actually wasn't right. Why? All to avoid those horrible three words, I was wrong. I was wrong. I'm sorry, right? That'd be the right thing to say, but you're not going to say it because it's easier for your ego to believe that you were right, even though you were clearly wrong. The pride of your heart has deceived you, okay? We also lie to avoid admitting how much something bothers us, okay? We lie to avoid admitting how much something bothers us. Specifically, and when I'm talking about this, there's many examples I could give. But I'm going to focus primarily on how your past bothers you. Primarily on how your past bothers you. We're Americans. We're individuals. We believe that we got everything under our control. We believe that we are self-made people because we've bought into that lie. Once again, we're deceiving ourselves. And in order to believe that, you have to say, you have to say that I'm not a product of my environment. I've raised above my environment, right? That's what you have to say. That's why the true American success story is rags to riches, right? 
Why? Because it's proving that I raised above my environment, right? No one wants to say, no, I'm a total product of my environment, you know? No one wants to admit that. No one wants to admit that the way that they treat other people was taught to them by their family, was taught to them by their culture. No one wants to admit that their success, even if they weren't financially supported by their family, they are still utilizing the gifts that was given to them by their genetics and the gifts that was given to them by living in an independent country in which they can raise above their circumstances. Right? You also don't want to admit how much the trauma of your past has impacted you in your present. You don't want to admit that people hurt you. You don't want to admit how much that person hurt you when they broke up with you. You don't want to admit how much it grieves you that you were abused as a child. You don't want to admit where all your nasty habits come from because you hate the person that gave you those habits. Right? We don't want to admit a lot of things. We don't want to admit how much things bother us. Which, by the way, all this leads to a nice, awesome thing in psychology that we call repression. Right? Repression is where something is so abhorrent to you that you pretend it's not there. Right? You just act like it's not there. And you suppress. You suppress information. Now, I don't have time to go into this, but suppression and repression lead to a whole litany of psychological issues. The most impressive one is it leads to, not, not this isn't the exclusive way to get this, but it is one way you get it, to what we call triggers. Okay, what a trigger is in psychology, it's where you overreact to something. Okay, you massively overreact to something because what you're reacting to is actually not what's going on in front of you, it's something that actually happened behind you. Okay? So for instance, let me give you an example. Let's say, as a kid, you were abused and yelled down as a child. So every time you had an opinion, your parent just completely yelled you down, or they abused you, or they quieted you in some way like that. So therefore, you taught yourself a methodology that whenever anyone conflicts with you, and when anyone confronts you, you shut down emotionally and physically, and you refuse to talk. Okay? Now, again, the truth that in the moment when you're talking to your spouse, you're talking to your boss, and they see you do this shutdown thing, it would be easy for you to say, hey, the reason why I do this is because I was deeply impacted by my childhood. And I'm trying to do better, but I can't. You know, it's just, it's holding me captive. I'm trying to get free of this, but it's just, it's too powerful, man. Like, it's difficult. I know that that was wrong. I'm trying to do better, right? That would be the truth. But instead of doing that, you repress it. You shove it aside, right? Now, when you repress something like that, that means that what you're doing is you're locking yourself in your trauma. You guys understand that? The only way to heal from your trauma is if you admit it's there. But if you suppress it, if you push it aside and you act like it's not there, you will always overreact to situations like that. You will never change. In fact, you'll get worse as time goes. You will continuously overreact. Why? Because you're not, you're not reacting to the person. You're reacting to what happened that you haven't yet healed from. Okay? There's more I could go into, but I'm running low on time. So the next thing that we're impacted by is we are impacted and influenced by our relationships. Okay? Specifically, we're impacted by those we are attracted to the most. We are impacted by those we're attracted to the most. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18 says, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. What this seems to be saying is that when you behold, when you stare, when you gaze, when you completely are enamored and captured by the glory, meaning the beauty of God, it transforms you. Which also means that if you're enamored by someone else's beauty, it's also transforming you without you even knowing it. The place that you and I got the majority of how we act what we think is right and wrong. We do not get those things from reading a book. We got those things from looking up to certain heroes in our life. Right? We were attracted to somebody, and the way they acted impacted us. It filtered down into the way that we behave without us even knowing it. There are many examples I give you in the Bible, but my favorite one is Solomon and his wives. Solomon was directly told by God not to marry pagan women, but he did it anyway. And his love for his wives, his adoration of their beauty, pulled his heart until he was setting up idol worship in Israel. 
He went from the man who knelt before the true and living God and asked him for the wisdom to lead his people to the man who was literally building idols to hoard gods like Baal and Moloch. Why did that happen to him? Is it because he didn't remember that God was the only true and living God? Is it because he forgot the law? No, it's because he was so enamored by his wives. He was so in love with them that slowly their morality trickled down into his heart till he thought the way that they thought. The Apostle Paul says, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. I mean, the relationships you have, the people that you're closest to, they're impacting the way that you think, whether you know it or not. When they discuss things with you, when they talk to you. And by the way, as parents, you know this and you hate it. Because there was a time in your kid's life where they just looked up to you, right? Usually between the ages of like 2 to 10, right? They just really looked up to you. They adored you. Everything you did, they wanted to do. They wanted to copy you. And then there's this glorious age called teenage years where they no longer look up to you. And they think you're out to lunch in every area. And they question you all the time. And you see them emulating, not you, but a friend or some YouTuber. And you're like, how did this happen? How did, this, how did my son or daughter go from the place where they just thought I was the best to the place where they question everything I do and are looking up to this person that I've never even met? And you know that's what's happening. You know, and that's why it hits you so hard. Because you know in your heart, I'm no longer the hero of my child. Right? I would like to go more into this, but don't you think it grieves your heavenly father when he sees the same thing in you? Right? What you're attracted to, who you're attracted to, is dictating your morality. And it's not about understanding that these people are wrong. Once again, it's about understanding that Jesus is right and he's better. We'll get more into that in a sec, though. We're also very much influenced by our expectations, right? We get our expectations, by the way, from what we consider normal. Okay, so your expectations when you enter into romantic relationships, your expectations when you enter into career, your expectations when you enter even into a church are all dictated to you by what you think is normal. You expect something. And you know what happens when you expect something? If you get it, the best you could be is just, that was cool. But if you don't get it, you have to be horribly disappointed and even bitter. That's why we as Christians, by the way, we get so angry at God when our lives don't go the way we think they ought to. I love Jeremiah. He's my favorite prophet. Jeremiah 20 verse 7, he says, Oh Lord, you deceived me. I love that because he had an expectation that God was going to actually deliver Israel. And he realized more and more as he went that no, he's not. He's going to judge Israel. And he says, you deceived me. Now God could easily respond and be like, what are you talking about? From day one, I told you this was going to happen. But you see, Jeremiah wasn't being led by what he knew to be true. He was being led by his expectations. What he expected to happen in spite of what he had been told would happen. I hate to say this to you guys, but did you know that Jesus, one of the few promises we have recorded of him, was that you would suffer? He said, in this world, you will have many trials. He says, I'm your master. You think you're better than me? That if I'm going to be persecuted and put to death, what makes you think that you don't get the same thing? What makes you think you're beyond that? That's why the apostles, over and over again, their letters, they like a sounding drum are like, don't think that something weird has happened. This is normal. Right, First Peter 4, do not think that something odd has happened to you when you are tempted by the fiery trial. This is normal. This is the way that things are. Right, your expectations move you because you're not interested in knowing what's true. You're only interested in having your expectations met. Which is why, again, as someone who does a lot of marital counseling, I'll say this is probably the number one reason why marriages don't last. is because both, couple, both people in the couple came into the relationship with expectations of how the relationship should go. And those expectations, by the way, were not given to them by God. They were given to them by their culture. They were given to them by TV. They were given to them by their mom and dad. They were given to them by, you know, they had all these expectations lined up of how relationships were going to go. And when they got into it and they realized 
reality and expectations don't quite meet, they blame the person. So instead of saying, hey, maybe my expectations were off, they instead say, you're off. You don't meet my expectations. You don't meet what I think is coming to me in this relationship, so therefore I have the right to break up with you. I don't need to love you. Right? I don't know how many times I could tell you guys that I've sat in marital counseling and people have said something to the effect of, I don't deserve this. Or this isn't how it should be. I'm like, where, where did you get that idea? Where did you get that idea? And, and by the way, this is not people who are being like physically abused. This is people that's just like, man, my husband always leaves the toilet seat up. It's not supposed to be this way. I'm like, where did you get that idea from? It's petty stuff. It's weird. It's like, where did you get the idea that your husband would be on the ball in every area? Where did you get the idea that your wife was going to look the same for the rest of your life? Or she was going to cook you five-star meals every night? Or she, you know, where did you get this idea? Where did you get this expectation? It's not from God. It's from your heart, right? You're influenced by your expectations. And therefore, you react with your reality, again, as if something's wrong with your reality, And you'll be like, I don't deserve this right. I have the right to divorce. I have the right to leave this person. They've let me down. Yeah, maybe your ideals, but they haven't let you down in the sense that they've actually violated the covenant that they made with you. And that's the issue. Also, we are very much influenced by our emotions. I'm going to end with this. Okay? Actually, sorry. I'm going to give you two. We got time. We got four minutes. That's time for two. We're influenced by our lust and we're influenced by our emotions. Ephesians 4, verse 22 through 23 says this that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Meaning that what you want is very good at tricking you. What you want is very good at tricking you. Uh, advertisers are awesome at this, by the way. They're really, really good at this. I was watching this movie not too long ago, and this guy in the movie, he gives this amazing monologue. It's really, really, it's really just philosophical. Someone who likes philosophy and stuff, I'm like, dude, that was really deep. That was good, you know? And he's given this monologue about why people are addicts, and he does it by looking at a carton of cigarettes. And he says, if you look at this carton of cigarettes, he says, you'll notice a couple things. He says, first, you'll notice a crown on the cigarettes. He's like, this is, this is to give you the sign that cigarettes are your royal and loyal friends. And he says, and you'll also be, uh, notice that the, the nice, big, bold font, and this is to show you that cigarettes are not only your loyal friends, but they're your predictable friends. They're always there for you. And he says, but then on the backside, you'll notice in big, boring, black ink, the words, these little things are trying to kill you appear. And he says, but these you don't really pay attention to because you've already absorbed the first two things and that last thing doesn't fit into what you want, right? So it never really impacts you. It never really sinks in. What he's saying is exactly what Paul's saying, that your lust is deceitful. If you want something bad enough, you will trick yourself. For people, this is crazy, you know, <laughs> because I, I thought it was scientifically proven, but I guess not. People are like, Aren't there, is there any scientific facts or evidence that smoking kills you? I'm like, well, yeah, you know, we actually have a lot of that, but you don't care enough to look into it. Why? Because you don't want to believe that smoking kills you. And even if you convince someone that smoking kills you, you know what they'll say? They'll be like, wow, my great-great-grandmother smoked till the day she died, man. Like, it didn't impact her, so it's probably not going to impact me. So they, they brush it aside, right? Even if 99 out of 100 people died from smoking, they would be like, well, what if I'm that one, though? You know, that's how weird you are. That's how bizarre your lust is. I love Isaiah 44, verse 20. He says, about a man who's being deceived by his lust, he said, he feeds on ashes, meaning he's never satisfied with what he's doing. A deceived heart has turned him aside, and he can't deliver his own soul, nor can he say, isn't there a lie in my right hand? This is the radical nature. I love this, by the way. I love how unbelievably realistic the Bible is. What he's saying is he's describing a man who chops down a log, cuts up half of it, throws it on the fire and uses it to make his food, and takes the other half, carves a little face in it, and bows down and worships it. And Isaiah is saying to this guy that like in his mind, in his, the front of his mind, he knows that this thing's a, a piece of wood. But when he looks at it, something changes. His whole perspective changes. He thinks 
he starts believing things about it that weren't true until he saw it, right? We know things in church, right? We know that lust isn't going to get you anywhere. We know that God's plan and design for marriage is the best. But do you really believe that in the moment? When you watch the movies and you see people, you know, trying different relationships, do you really believe that, oh yeah, God's plan is the best for me? When your marriage is having troubles, do you really believe that when God says he hates divorce and that you shouldn't get divorced, do you really believe that that's best for you in the moment? Can you really look at your right hand and say, is this not a lie? And the answer is no. Why? Because your lust deceives you. Man, it's powerful. It's really, really strong. You cannot simply say, nah, I don't buy into that. Right? Your intellect is not a match for your heart. It just isn't. It'd be great if it was. That's why, you know, usually when I'm counseling men who struggle with sexual sin and sexual immorality, you know, when we're, we're going over things in the moment in the group, they'll be like, yeah, I got it, I got it, I got it, I got it. Then they go home and they, you know, view porn or they cheat on their wife or they do stuff. I'm like, man, like, you just told me like an hour ago that you got it. And then you did something that clearly shows that you don't got it. Why? The deceitful lust. Now, how do, you, how do you fight this, most of this stuff, by the way? Okay. I don't have time to go into a huge detailed explanation, but this is what I'll say. The very simple, the very simple solution, you must renew your mind. You must renew your mind. Now, this is a difficult task. Okay, your mind is like a rubber band, you know? And if you pull on a rubber band, even for a long period of time, if you let it go, even for a moment, you'll go right back, it will go right back to its natural state, because that's where it wants to be. Your mind has a way of thinking. And it can be changed. You can renew the mind. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. It's possible. But what does it take? Consistent and constant pressure to go in a direction that it doesn't want to go. Your mind does not want to hear the truth. That's why you lie to yourself. If you want to understand the truth, you need to actually put in the effort. What are the things you do? Number one, start paying attention to your emotions. Start paying attention to your emotions because extreme emotional reactions are always significant of things that you don't want to believe. So if you have an extreme emotional reaction, nine times out of ten, that's because you are having a reaction to something that you don't want to believe, something you've repressed, something you don't want to think about. And if you don't take the time to stop and to be like, wait, why did I react that way? What's going on in my mind? Like, why, why is this happening? If you don't take the time to really think through what you believe and why you believe it, it's not going to make any difference. It's not going to make any difference. Because the final thing that deceives you is your emotions themselves. Okay? Just three. I'll give you three emotions that really jack you up. The first one is sadness. When you're sad, when you're in the midst of failure, you're depression, your grief will lie to you. As someone who struggles with depression, I'll tell you this happens all the time. Right? When you're depressed, you really believe you're worthless. Does that make sense? Right? If you talk to someone who's depressed and they're like, nobody loves me, and you're like, well, I love you, they'd be like, ah, you know, you know, like they, they won't believe it. They won't buy it because their heart is convincing them of something else. How about fear? Fear is so powerful that you will either believe what you're most afraid of or you'll not believe what you're most afraid of. This is how it works. So I used Elijah as an example. Elijah in 1 Kings 19, read it on your own time. In 1 Kings 19, Elijah is so afraid that he's the last prophet left that he believes it. That makes sense? He is so afraid that Israel is beyond saving that he really believes it. Okay, we do this all the time. We're afraid that someone hates us, and so we believe that they hate us. We're afraid a relationship's not going to work out, so we believe it won't work out. We're afraid that our house is on fire. We believe it, right? We're afraid of all these weird little things. We have anxieties. We're afraid we're sick. We believe we're sick. Or you could be so in the midst of your fear that you reject your fear, right? So something seems scary to you, so you just try to convince yourself that it can't actually happen. Or how about anger? Anger is one of the most intoxicating emotions you could ever have. It's so intoxicating, by the way, that if you give in to anger and bitter for long, bitterness for long enough, you can believe all sorts of false things. Because here's the thing about bitterness. In order to remain bitter at someone, you must believe that you have the moral high ground. You cannot for a second think that you do not have the moral high ground. How could you do that? 
How could you look at someone you're bitter at and be like, well, they're really a better person than I am, but I still hate them. You're not going to say that, right? So everything that they do, you're going to reinterpret. They're like, oh, do you know that this person, they were, you know, giving a charity the other day. They're like, oh, they're doing it for the tax write-off. You know, you're going to be a total cynic of everything. You'd be like, well, didn't you guys have good times when you were together? No, it was a lie. It was all a lie, you know? It was all deception, you know? Why? Because your bitterness won't allow you to see the good in that person. You're totally deceiving yourself based on your bitterness. That's why I like Jonah. He was a mess, but that dude was honest, you know? When he looked at Nineveh and he hated him, he straight out said it. God's like, why don't you want to go there? Because you're merciful. That's what he says to God. He's like, because you're merciful. If they repent, you're going to spare them. And I don't want that. I want you to kill them, right? Now we look at it like, Jonah, come on, man. You shouldn't say that. Well, at least he's honest with God. That's why God was able to work with him. If it was any of us, we'd be like, oh, we just love him, Lord. Oh, we love the Ninevites. Just give me the opportunity to share with them. And God's like, okay, go down there. They're like, oh, I don't know if that was from the Spirit. You know, Lord, give me a sign. You know, and you would, you would come up with all these reasons to avoid it. Why? Because you're run by your bitterness. Okay, the final thing that we need to understand about truth, and this is, this is what I'll end with. It's the most beautiful thing about truth. In the Bible, we believe that truth is not a concept. We believe that truth is a person. Jesus in John 14, verse 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the light. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus doesn't say, I'll tell you the truth, or I'll show you the truth. He says, I am truth, embodied. So when we as Christians say that we need to garner a love of the truth, what we're actually saying is we need, are trying to garner a love of who? Christ. And the more you love God, the more you love Christ, the more you will be willing to be moved by his spirit when he shows you truth. That's what we're doing. The person you adore the most is the person who has the most right to speak truth into your life. Right? Without adoration, truth means nothing. But with adoration, when we adore God, when we put him in his right place, his words have the authority to move us exactly where he needs us to go. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you so much for your truth, for the fact that even though we are people that are deeply deceived by our own pride and selfishness, by our emotions and our lusts, God, you love us right where we're at. I pray that we would be more and more lovers of truth, that we'd be willing to accept and embrace truth, even when it goes against what we want to be true. Lord, help us to rely on you. Help us to love you and adore you more, that we would give you the right to speak truth into our lives, that we'd give you the right to correct us and to show us where we're going wrong. God, we are thankful for you that you love us right where we're at. Give us the grace to walk through this. And in your name, amen.